Shall we turn in our Bibles again to the second book to the Corinthians, the second epistle, in the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the true and living God. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead." And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Praise God for that precious portion of scripture. Before we go to prayer, just a couple announcements. Um, We have a couple more families in our congregation who are mourning this week. Gerda Decker lost a brother-in-law back in Holland, and Herman Vandermeiden, uh, he also lost a sister in Holland. And so we uphold these 
families in our prayers, and we ask that uh, you be especially um, upholding one another as well throughout the week. And so let us now come before God in prayer. Let us pray. Our glorious King, our glorious High Priest, our glorious Chief Prophet, Jesus Christ, the Mediator between God and man, you are the one that we are calling upon this morning. We are your flock and you are our shepherd. We are your people and you are our God. We are but sinners who need your mercy and grace and forgiveness. For we have heard out of your law, O God, what you have required of us. We have heard of that searching word that uncovers all the wickedness of this past week. All the things that we've spoken, all the things that we have thought, all the things we have done all the things we have not thought and not spoken and not done. It is all, Lord, laid out before you. We are open books and we are easily read of you. And so we have nowhere to hide. We come into your presence seeking that honesty, that seriousness, that sobriety, whereby we may truly be real real before you, confessing, Lord, that we need you. We need you as the Savior at this hour, at this time, to visit us, to manifest your glory and your grace towards your people. It is you, it is you, O glorious Christ, that is the reason for life. If it were not for you, O Christ, this entire world would have long ago been consumed in the flaming fire of judgment. And each day, as we contemplate how many live in open rebellion and defiance against the laws of heaven, we are in wonder that it has not happened. And yet you still have a purpose for this world. It is sustained by your power until the appointed time when you shall return in great glory upon the clouds. And until that day, you are yet gathering your people. And the reason you would gather them, O Lord, is for your worship, for your honor, for your praise, and for the praise of your Father. It is not for merely ourselves that you have redeemed us from darkness, from sin, and from the evil one. No, all of your chosen ones, they are redeemed as brands from the fire for the praise of your glorious grace in order that you would receive all power and honor and authority and dominion both in heaven and on earth so that all the fullness which dwells in you of deity would indeed be revealed both today in the way of faith and in the age to come in the way of sight and that forevermore. We need, Lord, to see 
that all of our lives are defined in reference to you. Everything we do is defined by whether it is of faith, whether it is in dependence upon your word unto us, or whether it is in unbelief, in practical atheism, as we live our lives as though we were but those who had no light to guide our paths. And it is defined according to obedience, whether, whether out of pure consciences and and submissive hearts we offer you those sacrifices of love and praise and worship or whether we succumb unto the evil one succumb to temptations to those things which would distract us and drag us down causing us to be ensnared and and enslaved by the things of this world the things that would would capture our worship and and our devotion But it is only in you and through your spirit, O great crucified and risen and ascended Christ, whereby we may find liberty, the liberty to be truly ourselves, the people that you would have us to be, as those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, even before the foundation of the world, to receive that glorious inheritance even now of eternal life and perfect blessedness in a measure through communion and union with you, finding in you all of our delight, surrendering our hearts and our minds and our souls unto you, delighting in you, saying that your kisses are sweet, that your manifestations of love are are more precious than all the gold and silver this world can offer. And Lord, we long for more of that. We know that there are surely people here who, who are not enjoying your presence as, as maybe they have in the past or as they would long to. There are your true people here, O Lord, and they would long to have a testimony from your word, speaking to them personally, sealing it to their souls that indeed there is a Christ in heaven who yet speaks, who yet guides, who yet is with his people even unto the end of the age. But we know, O Lord, that in any gathering there are surely those who do not know you, who go through the motions and who, who come to a place like this where many in the, in the world do not, and yet they do not have that true acquaintance with you, that realization of the kind of Savior that you are, the very Son of God, enfleshed in humanity, nailed to the tree, a sacrifice for sin, a judge. The fullness of your revelation is hidden unto those who are perishing. And so we do plead that according to your wondrous grace, you would shine the light of your truth in such a way that no eyes can shut it out. That you, O Lord, would raise from spiritual death those who are yet captive thereto. And that, Lord, we would be an undivided church family on that day of judgment. That is what we long for. You are able to do it. There is nothing too hard for you. But even these little ones who understand only in in part the things that are said, if anything, who are yet in the presence of your opened word and your praying people and your interceding spirit, that they would as well partake of grace 
that they would not go through life just in their own strength and wisdom, but that they as well would savor of the delightful things of salvation and eternal life through you. But as well, Lord, we know that in our our church family, there are those who are bowed down with great griefs and sorrows, worries, pains, and cares. And especially we, we lift up those who are mourning deceased loved ones. And again, we do uh, lift up Al Sikama, who we spit last week, has lost a dear brother-in-law in, in Michigan. But as well, we pray for Gerda Decker and the loss of her brother-in-law and Herman Vandermeiden as he mourns his sister in, in the Netherlands. And Lord, we so plead that they would have a special testimony of your presence to them in this time of sorrow, together with all their families and those who are scattered uh, in, in far, far corners of this world that they cannot have access to. Lord, you are at no time absent. You are ever at hand. You are ever to be sought, also in times of distress and sorrow. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would uphold these and that you would give a special testimony of your, of your love towards them. As well, Lord, we, we pray for those who have other, other wounds and sorrows that they bear with them, whether loved ones that have long, long ago gone away, whether it is loneliness or separation from, from those who are dear to us, whether it is helplessness and and concern for the future, whether it is a a feeling of of deep regret for the past or pains of conscience about all that we have left undone and, and how we come into this place perhaps unprepared on our end. Yet, Lord, you are more than sufficient in our weakness to magnify yourself. We lift up as well those who, who do have, have great um, pains in their bodies. We think of Mary Overdoon and, and Martha Dyer, and we pray, Lord, give them comfort and, and healing as well. We pray for uh, Ray Koopman, for Art Vanderels, for Jane Vanderplug, for those who are undergoing or, or will un- undergo important surgeries or, or treatments. And we pray, bless these unto their health and restoration. In these days, O Lord, where we do see so much darkness and so much uh, trouble, so many judgments of your wrath upon the earth, we do pray that we would not be a people who are just caught up in these circumstances. That we are not just anxious about about, uh, viruses and, and the danger thereof, that we would not just be worried about about what the government is doing or not doing, but we do pray that we would have broken hearts of true repentance, a sorrow for sin, that we would rend our garments, put on sackcloths and ashes, and plead that you would rend the heavens and come down in our day. We so plead, O God, that you would uphold, that you would strengthen. In a special way, we also lift up uh, Diane Rusink. And we know, Lord, that she had... uh, terrible fall this this week and that she has been injured and so we do pray lord that that you would help her that you would 
sustain her and that you would help also her dear husband Gerhard as he continues to minister unto her. May it please you, O Lord, to help your people. Help them as they worship you. Help them, Lord, to focus upon your truth. Help them to mix it with faith. Help it all to be a sweet-smelling aroma unto you. And may it all rebound unto your glory. We pray this, pleading, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins, for they are great, but the blood of Jesus Christ is far greater. Drown them all and destroy them all through the wonderful power of his death for sinners. And we pray it in his most holy name. Amen. Let's now pray from, sorry, uh, worship from Psalter 448, stanzas 1 to 4.
Beloved congregation of the Lord, shall we turn again in the second uh, epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 5, and will you look with me in the first part of verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Well, congregation, I wonder if you have heard of that pivotal moment in the life of Abraham. I'm, I'm sure you, it's very familiar to you. There's one point at which the Lord tested Abraham and told him to take his son, even his only son, Isaac, the son of promise, to take him up the top of Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. We read there in Genesis chapter 22, don't we, about how Abraham rose up early in the morning. He took his son with him, and and they ascended there up together. And his son even asked the question of his father, who will provide the animal for this sacrifice? Well, Abraham said, the Lord will provide my son. And they They ascended higher and higher until they got to the very top of the mountain. And Abraham bound up his son. And in obedience to the word of the Lord, he raised up his knife to give that deadly blow. And there we we read in, in in Genesis 22 and verse 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay down thine hand upon the lad. Neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. He spoke, the Lord did, to Abraham about fear. Fear of the Lord. It's something that is testified to throughout the Bible as something which is the test of true, genuine religion. It is something that is different from a kind of a a fear that the unbeliever has. An unbeliever who does not have any hope of eternal life, they relate to God as merely a judge. And so they have every reason to dread and be utterly terrified of God, to shrink back from his presence and and to slink away into despair. But for the believer, we also have a kind of fear of the Lord. It's spoken of in many portions of the Bible as a special grace which God bestows to his children. In Jeremiah 32, verse 40, for example, God says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them, 
speaking of his people, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. Spoken of in in Psalm 112, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. His seed shall be mighty upon the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Unless we think this is only in the Old Testament scriptures, the author of the Hebrews gives this exhortation to the Lord's people under this dispensation of of the revelation of Christ. Hebrews 12, verses 28 to 29, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, if we were to take all of these different passages and and try to sum up what is this fear of the Lord that is being spoken of here, I think that the definition that is is given by the theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel is is helpful. He says that this fear is, is a holy inclination of the heart generated by God in the hearts of his children, whereby they, out of reverence for God, take careful pains not to displease God and earnestly endeavor to please Him in all things. That's what I say is the mark of of true religion, indeed of a true Christian. They have the fear of the Lord. I'd like to especially focus upon this wondrous grace as it is disclosed here in the testimony of the Apostle Paul. He speaks of himself, and he uses the plural as a more modest way of of speaking. And he says in, in verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now the word that's translated terror, it's, it's just the same word for fear. And Paul is speaking here in this great chapter of which we've been, been considering about how this grace worked its way in his own life and how it, it related to all the other truths of which he is discussing here. And so I'd like to zero in on that for a few moments this morning and And we'll consider that together, simply the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And we'll consider uh, three things here. First, its great importance. Second, its excellent fruit. And third, the sins that are opposed to it. So we'll see it's greatly important. We'll see how it manifests in excellent fruit. And we'll also consider the sins that are the opposite or opposed to the fear of the Lord. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. This is a matter of of great importance that Paul is speaking of. It, 
it comes on the heels, doesn't it, of, of what we were considering last time we were together in this chapter. And, and that is the coming judgment that all of us will experience. Everyone, whether believer or unbeliever, whether in the church or out of the church, whether living or dead, it says in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. It's certainly the most important appointment that any of us will ever keep. An appointment that we all must keep. And a, an appointment with Christ as judge, which will define everything in our lives. And so Paul transitions and he, he speaks in this way. Therefore, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. It's really the, the test, isn't it? Whether we've really apprehended the great truth of the judgment to come is whether we have the fruit that should manifest itself, and that is a right fear, a reverence, and awe that will come from them. It's something that is, is certainly very important, isn't it? The fact that God's majesty will be revealed on that day. His utter hatred of sin. It's something that is spoken of, for example, in the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 14 and following. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in dens and in rocks of the mountains, and said to the rocks and mountains, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne." And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? That's set forth here as a revelation of what will happen on that day. They are the mighty. They are the powerful. And they are crying out for the very mountains to fall upon them. And it's because of the wrath of the Lamb. This very one who was crucified and slain as a sacrifice for sin, this very same Christ, the Lamb, will manifest his, his great wrath against his enemies. It's a solemn thing. It's a solemn thing even for the Apostle Paul to consider. Paul is not someone who, who is cast to and fro about whether or not he will be numbered among those transgressors. No, he, he began this chapter by speaking about how he knows we ha he has an, a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He has an assurance of eternal life in Christ. But even he, as he contemplates 
what that day will mean as a manifestation of wrath, as every sin receives a just recompense of reward, as there is all of the the devil's family cast into the lake of fire, as even the, the mighty of this world are trembling and fearful on that day, in the here and now, Paul can look ahead to that day by faith. And it fills him with an awe, with a sobriety, with a soberness. This is important. It's important that if we would really understand the judgment, we would be affected by it. Isn't it, it really the case that it, when, when everyone stands on that day for that judgment scene, Surely that will be the only thing on their minds. Everything will be wrapped up in Christ and what God is doing through him. So if we hear of these things, if we believe these things, if we know these things, then surely the Christian should be affected by it. Yes, if there's, there's an unbeliever here and, and you can just hear about this and, and not be affected by it, well, that isn't surprising, isn't it? Because all the things that really, really matter in the Christian life require a true faith where you would, you would understand how it re- applies to you and you would, you would really be affected by it. And that's something the Holy Spirit gives. But for, for Christians, for those who have been changed, who have been renewed by the Spirit of God, they of all people should be affected by this the thought of the judgment. And really, it it goes to this question, isn't it? Really, the very important question that we all must ask, do we know this Lord? Do we know this Lord? Indeed, sometimes when we speak of the fear of the Lord, perhaps we're speaking of Jehovah as the true God, and so we're including Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. But here, as Paul has been, been focusing upon Christ, and if you look, uh, for example, earlier on in uh, verse 8, he used the very same word, Lord, to refer to Christ. And so here, he's talking about the fear of the Lord or the terror of the Lord as, a, as especially directed towards Christ himself. And that just goes to this question. You, maybe you say that you believe in Christ. Maybe you say that, that Christ is the one that you are hoping in, the one you're delighting in, the one that you're really living for. But here's the question. Is it the true Christ? Is it this Christ, the one who will come in the clouds in judgment, the one before whom all of his enemies will flee in terror? Yes, he is a welcoming Savior. Yes, he is a loving Savior, a tender Savior. He is the Lamb of God. And anyone who really knows this Lamb, they know that he has wrath against sin. And so it cannot but be that for the believer that this will be the question that they will ask themselves. Do I know this Lord? If I do know him, then I must have this fear. And as well, 
It goes to this question, do we really know ourselves? Also a very important question. It says in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. For the one who's who's maybe has a certain idea of forgiveness, maybe they, they can do without the fear of the Lord. And that has to do with the fact that, that they're not really troubled by their sin. They've never really been, been truly troubled by it as what it really is, an offense against God and against Christ. What did the psalmist say? If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We would all fall down if you would truly point to our sins. None of us could stand upright. We've all sinned. And indeed, we include ourselves in that, don't we? We say, I have sinned against the Lord. I have offended God. Then, what else does he say there? He says, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. When there is that sight of forgiveness, when we perceive that Christ was reconciling the world to himself upon the cross, that he was being made sin for us there on the cursed tree. Then we come to see that that forgiveness is meant to lead us to fear. Fear because we come to see what God really thinks of sin. And we come to see what our sins deserve. Even the torments of hell which Christ experienced in the place of his people. And yes, there is delight in that. There is joy in that. There is confidence in that. But also fear. The fear of reverence. The fear of awe. The fear of the Lord. Really, we can say this as well. This is so important because if you don't know this fear, you have to ask yourself the question, do you really know anything at all? It says doesn't it, in Proverbs 1 and verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's not the case that this fear of the Lord comes at the very end of a long process of of reasoning, of, of working things out, and then if you really attain to a certain level, then you know the fear of the Lord. If you want to understand anything in your life, any problem that you're going through, any, any uh, plan for your future, any kind of relationship that you have, any kind of responsibility, everything requires the fear of the Lord to even to begin to understand it in its eternal significance, in its spiritual import. Without the fear of the Lord, we are but fools. And so you look around at the world, you look, you look at the political realm, and you see all of these politicians, and they're trying to rule justly, but without the fear of the Lord. And you look in, in the business world, and people are, are busying about their responsibilities, but 
Without the fear of the Lord, it's all just confusion. You look even in the church, and even the most holy activities, they become distorted and heinous and ugly because they're not characterized by the fear of the Lord. Even in family life or, or in any kind of, kind of context, if you don't have this, you have no wisdom. You're left without any kind of light or truth. So, we see this, don't we? That this is a matter of such great importance. And so Paul speaks about this. He testifies that knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. Paul here is is speaking, isn't he, about what is the natural outgrowth or product or fruit of the fear of the Lord. How we can really understand whether we have this grace, and that is it manifests itself. It's not just hidden away in our hearts, but, but like Abraham. You notice how the Lord said, Now I know that you fear me. When he performed that, that obedient act, even willing to sacrifice his son, so also the fear of the Lord must be manifested if it would be known to be true fear. And what he says here is that knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now I think there's two things that really need to be unfolded from that uh, word persuade. And it has a sort of the nuance of obtain the favor of. You see this Epistle Second Corinthians was actually written to a church that had come to doubt the credibility of Paul as an apostle. They'd fallen under the influence of false teachers who were attacking his character and lying about him. And so in the, in the first place, what we need to see here is, is that he is trying to persuade them or to earn the favor of these people by showing the kind of integrity that characterized his life. We'll be seeing a little bit more of that in the, in the afternoon. But I think we can, we can see this as well from many other places where Paul speaks about what true integrity, what moral uprightness meant to him. He said, didn't he, in the book of Acts, um, he was giving sort of his record or his credentials of faithfulness. And he says in Acts 24 and verse 16, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. If you want to understand what it is to have integrity, that's a really good place to start. How is it with your conscience? In your, your awareness and sensitivity to what God demands of you. Do you exercise yourself as Paul does to keep that conscience void of offense? To, to lay up your life before God's commandments and say, is there faithfulness here? 
Is there departure from what God is is requiring of me? Am I desiring and, and actually working towards conformity to the will of God? Paul could say that. And so he could say that knowing the fear of the Lord, he is, he is one who has this integrity. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity or love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. That's really what comes from someone who really knows the fear of the Lord, right? If you have a perception for how great and holy and powerful God is, how you will certainly stand before his son, Jesus Christ, upon the throne of judgment, how everything in your life is laid bare before him. And if you really know him, you really know him as a true Christian, if you have communion with him, if you pray to him, if you really think upon him and hear his voice in the scripture, it cannot but be that that would have an effect beginning in the heart that you would desire to really know him, desire to really please him, desire to conform your life to him, indeed to love your neighbor as he commands, but, but most of all to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what's required. And it's in these days, brothers and sisters, where we need to attend to this very particularly. Because what we see is that there is this terrible degeneration taking place all across society as all the vestiges and the remnants of Christian morality are erased, as... as People succumb more completely to the spirit of this world. The reality is that true ethics, true morality, true integrity that comes from having a life before the face of God, it is becoming more and more rare. What is it that people think, by and large, that, that true integrity is? Well, it's, it's more about how other people perceive you. It's about what you can get away with. It's about how you personally feel. And that can seep into the church so easily. We lose sight of what true holiness and true integrity is. Where there is no fear of the Lord. Where there is not that awareness of who he is. In addition, we should say this. That it is manifested not only in in integrity, but also in soul winning. In soul winning. He says, doesn't he? Knowing, therefore, the terror or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Indeed, it does have that sense of, of highlighting his own integrity, but as well, this word has the sense of actually persuading others. As our translation draws up very well, it has the idea of communicating a message with a view to winning them over. That's really what he, he takes up later on in this uh, chapter, doesn't he? 
where he speaks of himself as an ambassador for Christ, one who represents the will of another. And he says in verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That's as well as is really a manifestation, isn't it? That is a true fruit of someone who fears the Lord. For a true believer who's, who's caught a sight of what that judgment will mean for the unbeliever, who has a real sense of how everything they do is in the sight of God, how can it but be that they would desire to win the soul's of men for Christ. That must surely be a priority, shouldn't it? And yet how often is it that we make excuses for that? We suppress that fear and we, we come to say, well, I can't put myself out there. I surely can't, can't speak to this one that I know is not walking with the Lord. This, this one who's, who's an acquaintance of mine. I, I can't possibly put myself out there to speak unto them. But on that day of judgment, who among us will regret even a single word that was spoken of the things of eternity? Who among us will regret speaking with earnestness and with tears to those around us that there is a Savior, that there is an open door that anyone may walk through, that Christ does beseech sinners by us, be reconciled to God. Believe upon him. Turn from your sins. Join yourself unto God in Christ. And be prepared on that day. You know, turn away from his offers and his invitations. But be reconciled unto him. Isn't it the case that while this applies in a particular way to ministers of the gospel, it applies to me. Every single time that I, I stand before you, I must have this ringing in my ears. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And I must give an account for for how it is that I speak to you. Whether I, I use the logic of Scripture to persuade you or whether I just appeal to, to your emotions. Whether I am faithful in speaking the hard truths that are difficult to hear and difficult to say. I'll have to give an account for that. It said in the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 33 and verse 8, When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. It applies to prophets and to apostles and to ministers that if we do not warn those who are living in their sins that they will experience the judgment of God, their blood will be on ourselves. But I think there's also an application to every Christian, isn't there? We need to find opportunities to speak. If we truly believe these things to be so, that we must speak. We must speak in our families. We must speak to our children and grandchildren. 
We must speak to our spouses. We must speak to our neighbors. We must speak to our coworkers. We must not quench that desire to speak, but it must flow from us. We must tell this generation to flee from the wrath to come. You say, I have no opportunities to share the gospel. Well, would we even look for them if they were there? I think about what Jesus said in John chapter 4 and verse 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already, already to harvest. He's saying, just look around you. Look at this perishing world. Look at all the souls that are enslaved to the devil, enslaved to lusts, enslaved to money, enslaved to reputation, enslaved to themselves, headed for eternity. And why are we here in this world but to speak to them? The fields are ripe for harvest. There are opportunities all around us. How can we pass them by? Even a single word spoken of the Savior can that not be used unto the salvation of a soul. Jesus goes on in John chapter 4 and he says, And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. It's a beautiful encouragement that he gives there. Jesus doesn't need us in order to save his elect, but he so gladly chooses us to be his ambassadors and his witnesses and his means of gathering his chosen church unto himself. And it is our delight. It is our delight to rejoice with all of the gathered church on that glorious day. If We are truly those who fear the Lord. And there's that promise that he will reward us, he says. He that reapeth receiveth wages. There is nothing, nothing to be compared with bringing a soul unto Christ. You know, it's interesting. And once we get to heaven, there'll be so many things that will occupy us, that will cause us to delight and to enjoy God. But there's one pleasure that will be denied us that I can think of. And that is that once we are in heaven, believers, we will never have the opportunity to witness of Christ to an unbeliever again. That joy will be lost to us then. But we can take that joy now. Even if they would throw that in our face and laugh at us, even if we, we get nowhere at all with them. Is there not that joy of just taking his, word, his name upon your lips, of speaking of him and what he has done for you? Even if it comes at a cost, even if it earns the disapproval of family or of friends or colleagues or strangers, what is that? What is that compared to the rejoicing? with those who are saved on that glorious day. Well, we've seen uh, these things, 
there is the excellent fruit, the excellent fruit of the fear of the Lord. But in the third and last place, I'd like to speak for a moment about the sins that are opposed to the fear of the Lord. You know, I thought it was interesting as, as I was studying this passage, it really seemed as though these two things are brought together, your moral integrity and your witnessing, your persuading others. And that all flows from, from this godly fear of, of the Lord. That sort of points us to this fact. If, if it is the case that we are, we are not walking in integrity, we are not witnessing, then what we ought to do is we ought to see what a glorious liberation it would be for this fear of the Lord to lay hold of us. This fear, and, and the very word for fear is used later on in in Paul's epistle here to the Corinthians, he's, he uses it in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That's the wonderful truth about the gospel. It's not just that you have heaven to come. You can have such a savor of heaven now as those sins that cling to you and, and ensnare you now, they can be expunged. You can let them go. There is power through Christ, through his word, about his indwelling spirit, through union with him. We can be freed from specific sins. And so I'd like to point out just, just a few sins that are directly opposed to the fear of the Lord. And I hope we can search them out. And through Christ's grace, may it be that we will be free from them. In the first place, I think we ought to say that this is a terrible sin that is opposed to the fear of the Lord, and that is pride. Pride. Could there be anything more directly contrary to that awesome sight of God and his majesty than someone who has a spirit of pride. You know, it says in, for example, in, um, in the book of Psalms 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's how it ought to be with us. Whenever we, we, we look at ourselves, we ought to ask ourselves, is there that, that brokenness, that humility before the sight of God? Do we understand what Peter says when he says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble? What is pride? It's thinking more highly of ourselves than we are. It is being a bragger, someone who, who just says, well, look at me in whatever circumstance. It's about actually taking some glory to yourself about the kind of life that you live. Take anything in, in life, any achievement that you have, there can be something that you can find pride in. It can even be the case that, that even humility or rather a false humility, can be a source of pride. 
It's interesting how, how Paul here is able to speak with such boldness and with such clarity. He knows himself, he knows the Lord, he knows his sin, and yet he is able to say, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He says, I do fear the Lord. He says, I do walk in integrity. I do persuade men. And yet in these things, he is not claiming glory for himself. He is magnifying the God who has redeemed him. That's the perspective. We focus upon who God is, what he has done in Christ, what he is doing for us. And then we, we are free from pride. We can simply speak the truth as it is. We can simply speak to others about our, our, our joys or about our concerns. And we can stop caring what they would think about us because we are living only for God. But that single eye of devotion is upon him. What a freedom from pride there can be. As well, you can see this as, as a sin that's directly contrary to the fear of the Lord, and, and that is laziness, isn't it? Laziness. A sin where we indulge our own desires. And we don't give ourselves with that zeal to the calling which we are called to. I think, for example, about what uh, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. And if you look in chapter 6 and verse 5, he's speaking to slaves in the Roman Empire. And this is what he says. Servants or slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. So you hear what he's saying. He's saying, you have a calling slave, and you should, should undertake that calling in the sight of Christ, for his service, and with fear, fearing, displeasing Christ. That ought to characterize you and what you're doing. He goes on in verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. What a glorious thing it is to give yourself to those things that you are called to. It doesn't matter what job you have in the day. It doesn't matter the kind of people you're working with. If you do that in the sight of the Lord and, and the fact that he will reward you for every, everything that is done in faith, you can be so encouraged that he will reward you on that day of judgment. What of what those who are laboring to care for, for spouses? Well, you should do that unto the Lord. Even that the Lord is taking notice of. We're caring for other loved ones. And even we're, we're isolated and it doesn't seem like we can help anyone. We can't really speak to anyone. We can't, can't even move in those moments even the services that we render to the kingdom in the way of prayers and supplications, 
each prayer of his people it is used for the advance of his purposes and it is gladly rewarded and so lay up for yourself before your your thoughts all that you are called to do all of the spiritual responsibilities in preparation for worship and personal devotions in your family life in your in all your callings lay them up and see that these are important to God and see that he is pleased when you give yourself to them and what freedom you will have from that the attitude of the slugger that has to drag himself to do his work that gets gets discouraged and and frustrated and distracted no Remember that the fear of the Lord can save you from this and seek it through Christ's grace. The final thought we'll we'll say here is that there is idolatry. Idolatry is opposed to the fear of the Lord. I think back to that, that godly man, Abraham. And when the Lord pointed his finger to even the son that he loved, even to the son of promise. Abraham, by faith, was able to surrender even his son. Why? Because that fear of the Lord, that awe about who God is, that the gracious soul enjoys, that can swallow up everything else. You might say, well, that's not what I want. I I want to love my family. I want to love my children. I want to love my spouse. I want to love my job. I want to love all these other things. Yes, you can love these things. But where is the top priority? If God does not come first, then all these things will destroy you. All these things will lead you away. Even the most holy attachment, if it is separated from God, will become an idol. And so yes, on that, that day of judgment, when we are all caught up, called up together with the clouds, with Christ, and we spend eternity with him in the heavenly places, yes, we will have those perfect wills, that joy in God and joy in Christ, and so that every other attachment it will fade into insignificance. We will be able to enjoy God as never before. But if we would rightly enjoy his gifts now, then that must also be something that we savor of, something that we strive after. That God would be God, and that we would be but his creatures, but his sons and daughters, but sinners redeemed by grace. It's that that frees us from the idolatry of the creature, elevating anyone or anything into the place of God as the source of our happiness and satisfaction. That is what God is pleased to give through Jesus Christ's congregation. Let us lay up before ourselves all of the sins that are opposed to the fear of the Lord. Let us search our hearts Let us humble ourselves before him and let us seek a full deliverance from them. Amen.
Let us pray. Glorious Jesus Christ, we do praise and honor you. We plead that you would help us to truly know what it is to fear you. Not the fear of dread, but rather the fear of awe. And that in these things we would be so transformed that we would truly be your people, that we would be liberated in order to glorify your most holy name. Help us in these things, O God, to test ourselves and to, to apply unto you for fresh mercy from on high. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the message, let us sing from Psalter 48, stanzas 5 to 8.
our next Psalter, let us sing from Psalter 261, stanzas 1 to 3. Let us sing from doxology number 400 and stanza 7. Now depart in peace and receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.